the mountain, it needed an overhaul. We had a uh, center pole double riblet chairlift. Now that chairlift was put in used in 1962. There was a hall uh, double face chair that was put in in 1969. And then there was the worst lift on the mountain, the 1972 Thiokol triple. Um, didn't have any foot rests and had a very weird slope. So you always felt like you were sliding off the chair. There was just um, about 14 or 15 functioning mobile snow guns. Most of the pipelines were rotted out and would burst frequently. You know, the cafeteria was at least 50 years old. In fact, I had spoken to someone who's, you know, a proficient ski area operator who was interested in investing with me originally. And, you know, looking back now, although it was an irritating comment to hear at the time, he said, listen, I'm really not going to do anything here with you, Spence, because you're basically zoned for skiing and there's nothing on this property that doesn't need to be replaced. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, talking about the revitalization of an awesome New York ski area today. First though, go to stormskiing.com and sign up for the free storm skiing newsletter. Podcast is an important part of the storm, but it is just a part of it. This whole ecosystem revolves around the newsletter. So get in on that. Storm lives a lot on Twitter too, so you can follow me there at Storm Ski Journal. First, quick word about my partners, Mountain Gazette and Hallie Hansen. This episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Hallie Hansen, the brand that has been making professional grade gear for more than 140 years. And listen, if you're getting excited about spring touring and summer hiking, then you need to check out their new groundbreaking Odin 9 World's Infinity Shell Jacket. This is the newest iteration of their award-winning jacket and it features their Leafa Infinity Pro technology, which doesn't use any added chemical treatments. That means you never have to reproof your jacket. It's easier to tear for and there's much less environmental impact. The best news is that this environmentally friendly upgrade did not come at the sacrifice of performance. Ellie Hansen has worked with search and rescue organizations around the world to make sure it has the performance these teams demand. So, if you want to get your hands on a men's or women's Odin 9 World's Infinity Shell jacket, or anything from the brand's new spring or summer collection, visit the Ellie Hansen Boston or Burlington store and mention this podcast to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because that's the year they were founded. That's right, more than 140 years ago. The Storm Skiing Podcast is also brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. The crew is shipping issue 195 and it is loaded. We've got a spring skiing gallery by legendary Alta-based photographer Lee Cohen. Amanda Monty's stunning essay on the folks fighting fires in the West, a Q&A with New Hampshire governor and Waterville Valley owner Chris Sununu, an essay about the rising sun by former free skier editor Donnie O'Neill, an exploration of an upstate New York Harley-Davidson club by photographer Jason Roman, and the return of the jaded local who comes over from Powder Magazine. And that's just the start. This thing will be loaded with photos and stories from mountain towns around the country. Look, we told you last time that issue 194 would sell out, and it did. Demand for the magazine is high. We expect this next issue to sell out as well. Do not miss out. 
head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Speaking of covers, you've got to check out the cover for 195. It is absolutely stunning. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 44, Spencer and Sarah Montgomery, owners and operators of West Mountain, New York. Do you ski in New York? If so, have you been to West Mountain? If so, how long has it been? If the answer is more than eight years, then I have an assignment for you. Go back. You will not recognize the place. Since Spencer and Sarah Montgomery took over in 2013, they have gut renovated that mountain, pouring $17 million into the ski area. They've replaced all the lifts and all the snowmaking. West now has 100% night skiing lighting and 100% snowmaking coverage. The lodges have been completely renovated. The transformation is unbelievable. And they're just getting started. The Montgomery's long-term vision is to transform West into a true ski-and-stay resort, which, frankly, New York has a critical lack of. They are thinking big, and they are thinking long-term. I love their vision, I love their energy, and I think you will too. Let's go. My guests today have been running West Mountain, New York, since 2013. West Mountain has 31 trails on a 1,000-foot vertical drop. Since purchasing the mountain, they have invested more than $17 million in new infrastructure, including updated lodges, snowmaking, and chairlifts. Sarah Montgomery is the ski area's general manager, and Spencer Montgomery is the co-owner and operator. Sarah and Spencer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. First of all, it's been a long year for all of us. How have you and your family been weathering the pandemic and everything that came along with it? Well, um, and Sarah, if you want to jump in, you always can. I don't want to talk over you. Um, so the uh, the pandemic, when we went into shutdown, I think was March 16th last year. And uh, we, like everyone, were pretty panicked and um, went into a full shutdown of the mountain and close of operations. And then um, we hit phase four guidance and we were open able to open our summer operations last summer uh, successfully without any problems. Uh, aerial ropes course on top, uh, mountaintop picnics, scenic chairlift rides, and mountain biking. So that really got us kind of ready for the winter season. And um, we jumped into that, you know, with unseasonably warm weather um, coming into uh, the Christmas week. And then we got hit with about 36 inches of natural snow. And it was off to the races, like, uh, from that point forward and, and really a, really a stellar year. So you've been able to ramp things back up in a pretty impressive fashion, but let's start actually at the beginning here. So you took over the ski area prior to the 2013 to 14 ski season. How did you come to own West Mountain? Well, I'm from this area. I had grown up here at West Mountain. Um, I'm the youngest of six. We live right down the road. Um, my family's been friends with the Brants, who you know, were the original uh, founders of West Mountain. They bought it in 1961. It opened Christmas Day in 1962. Um, and there were three brothers, uh, Mike, Claude, and Paul, and um, and their wives and children, uh, who basically took a, a mountain and built a ski area out of it. And um, everyone in my family uh, worked for the Brant. Um, we're still good friends with them. And um, ironically, except for me, I was the youngest of six. I was Billy's age, and I skied here for free my whole life, but I never worked here. And some weird twist, I ended up back here, and I wanted my kids and our kids involved in racing. So when 
we moved back here. My wife, Sarah's from Chicago. Um, she always wanted to live in this area. So, um, we moved back here and, um, kids got into the race team. We have four children, um, 19, 18, um, 16 and 12 now that were all very young at the time. And, um, we got them on race team. I started helping out there. I became the race administrator. And as I sort of dug in here, you know, there hadn't been any infrastructure investment here in about 15 years. And the place was in a very difficult situation. Um, as a twist of fate, I got a phone call. I, I wanted to take over the race program and build a, a race academy here. Um, that sort of morphed into or evolved into a phone call that the place wasn't going to open in 2013. It was behind on mortgage payments and taxes and yada, yada. It had been turned over to, an, to a different operator uh, since Mike Brandt had left and the Brants had left. This, they weren't in charge of the Skiri at this time. But Mike was still the owner, so I called him out in Wisconsin and said he'd known my family forever and um believe it or not he jumped in his car he doesn't like to fly and he drove back here <laughs> we met the next day at the ski area and spent a lot of time together and i talked to him about my vision and what i wanted to do and he said you know he'd support me uh whatever i wanted to do at that point and that you know the lands across the top of the mountain in the ski area were basically in a foreclosure position and um I put some money in uh, with an investor to get just get us open that year. That was 2012. And I basically spent the year here reading documents and parsing all the different LLCs, et cetera, that were doing business here. And then I came to the conclusion that the only way to get clean title was to go through a uh, Chapter 11 federal bankruptcy. Um, we did not do that to to not pay creditors. We, we paid 100 cents on the dollar to all secured debt. Um, we did negotiate um, a fractional share payment for unsecured debt because it was really impossible to ascertain who was actually owed what if they didn't have a claim. And um, that started that. We uh, paid off the back taxes and the bank debt on the 1,200 acres across the top of the mountain that was slated for development. And then the 370 acres of the ski area and uh, took ownership uh, December 26, 2013. And, and Sarah, you had... Growing up in the Midwest, as Spencer mentioned, was your first contact with West Mountain with your family and when you moved back north and, and were able to ski it with them? We had been back here visiting. I had skied here, um, but it wasn't until we moved here and my youngest was in kindergarten that I really started getting involved here, um, working full time. I was on a part time basis uh, when Hudson uh, was still in preschool, but came on full time when he started kindergarten. And did you grow up skiing in the Midwest? I did not. No, I had been skiing before um, and we lived in Colorado for 10 years. Um, but most of that time, you know, I was I was uh, busy with with little children, so I did not get to ski much. But um, yeah, I mean, I like the operations aspect. I'm not the biggest skier. Uh, that's kind of my husband's guy. You know, that's his uh, his strong suit. And um, he taught, you know, the kids how to ski. but. Um, but I, I enjoy the outdoors and I enjoy ski area management. Have you found that you're, you like skiing a little more now that you own a mountain or, or is it, uh, is there that separation of, of work and pleasure where you just want to focus on running the place? I do. I do enjoy it more. Definitely. Um, I think the more I do it, the more I enjoy it. Um, but yeah, I just, I'm just a huge proponent of the outdoors and exercise and, um, and my kids love it. So it, uh, it forces me to get out there more. 
So you, you ended up buying the ski area and you went all in and you actually live right there at the mountain. Uh, why did you decide that that would be the best setup? Well, you know, I graduated from Glens Falls High School. There's Glens Falls City and Queensbury, town of Queensbury, which are basically, I'll say the same. They're, they're uh, very connected communities. Uh, but really to uh, be responsibly run the ski area, we thought we had to live on the ski area. And obviously it makes things a lot easier because the kids can be home and, you know, we're right there we can come into work and we don't have to worry um so you know proximity there was a house that went for sale that was just perfect timing um that was a house that fit us perfectly and you know looks out at the northwest base area and ski trails and uh i guess it was just, just good luck that it went for sale right about the time we were really getting involved over here 2015 was when we actually moved into that home i mean it's such a huge quality of life thing to just not have a commute i know Personally, I've been working from home for the last 13 months since the pandemic, and it's eliminated my commute, which I have no <laughs> issues with. I, I love just waking up and sitting down and being able to work. Um, but you actually have, uh, as you mentioned, four children. That must be a, an amazing experience to grow up right on a ski hill. How do they like that? Uh, they, they love it. I mean, um, it's pretty funny, and I probably don't want to throw him under the bus, but Billy Brandt, who's the youngest Brandt child, and I are the same age. And um, I think it's safe to say that I was always envious of his lifestyle and probably most people were he was a really good ski racer and uh worked here at the mountain you know his like i said his family built the place and um so i'm fortunate that i was able to give that to my kids um i have two in college now but both of them were were big ski racers and and uh two still doing it and um yeah it's a good lifestyle i mean you've got the mountain in your backyard to hike and and obviously ski our 12 year old drives a four-wheeler over goes to practice academy practice on Fridays at 9 a.m. And we don't normally see him till about 9 p.m. when we close. <laughs> he finds his way back home. So he he spends just an incredible amount of time on skis, which is, you know, really uh, necessary for that muscle memory. If you if you want to pursue ski racing at a high level. That's phenomenal. That's about the best backyard I can imagine. So, you know, one of the things one of the appeals, I think, of an independent operation in a in an era when there's such a growing conglomerationization of skiing, there's really a personal touch to this. And, and one of the ways that I noticed that uh, is that you actually run the Twitter account yourself for the mountain. I was really surprised most mountains will have a social media coordinator or something like that. Uh, why is that something that you decided you want to take ownership of? Well, when we first got involved, um, I mean, I really was illiterate when it came to social media. And um, I do most of the Facebook, well, Sarah and I, I shouldn't say that. We share the Facebook for West Mountain Racing and for West Mountain. And that's primarily our, our primary social media outlet. Sarah does the Instagram. I like taking pictures and going around the mountain and uh, being out on the hill. I really, we won the uh, Ski Area Management Marketing Small or Medium Sized Ski Area uh, Marketing Award a few years ago. And they said it was because of all the short video clips um, that I posted and pictures as we were installing you know, the three chairlifts we've put in and everything else we've done. And there's a real curiosity factor here. Like, for instance, how do you splice a haul uh, rope on a, on a chairlift? I mean, for myself, I, I don't have a background in this. So that was interesting. It's a 180 foot splice. And, you know, so I would video things like that, that or dynamiting the top of the mountain out so that we had a flat landing area for the new lift. And people just seem to like following those type of um, things are kind of quirky, but people like them. So I got into that and then I really got into it. Uh, the Twitter we've just started using more. Um, and I've been doing that and, uh, I think, you know, it's fun and it really allows us to show like a lot of nuances of, you know, a family run mountain. 
Yeah, the, the social is a lot of fun at West, and it's just a small part of really what you've done to transform that place. So paint this picture for us. What did West Mountain look like when you took over for the 2013 to 14 ski season? And how does that compare to what it looks like today? Well, it was basically the mountain that I started skiing on. Um, I started skiing here in uh, 72. And, you know, there was just the mountain itself was um, just really it needed an, an overhaul. Um, as I said, you know, the brands really stopped operations uh, back in I think it was 97 as a family operation. Um, Mike was still involved, I think, till about 2003. And so here's a perfect example. We had a, uh, a, a center pole double riblet chairlift that went to the top of the mountain. Now that chairlift was put in used in 1962 from Cobble Mountain. Wow. And I don't think Cobble Mountain's wow. there anymore, but you know, you're going back to the nope. Eisenhower era. And it used to right. just go to the top of the face. And then from there it went to the to the summit. Eventually it was added onto. And uh, you know, it was a good little lift. People like it. Um, but obviously extremely old. It was a it was a side loading lift that was difficult. Um, you know, and there was some other things that like, you know, Billy Brand actually gave me the idea to put the narwhal trail in so that when you pulled into the parking lot, you can see the full thousand vertical, you can see to the top of the mountain. Because most people, if you didn't know West, thought it was just the face, you know, the 1200 feet. So that lift was, so that lift was, you know, original, the original lift. There was a hall, uh, double face chair that was put in in 1969. And then there was the worst lift on the mountain over on the Northwest side was a 1972 Thiokol triple that ran at about 180 feet to 200 feet per minute and was, um, didn't have any foot rests and had a very weird slope. So you always felt like you were sliding off the chair and it would sort of cut your hamstrings in half. And we had like locals that were, oh, wow. that had their own ropes that they would hook on the uh, safety bar that had, I'm not exaggerating either. They had a T that they would put their skis on to take them. So anyways, there was that, there was just, um, about 14 or 15 functioning mobile snow guns. Um, most of the pipelines were rotted out and um, would burst uh, periodically and frequently. Uh, the power structure was in rough shape. Um, you know, the cafeteria was, you know, at least 50 years old. Uh, the pump house pumps were old cooling pumps um, that weren't designed originally for snowmaking that were horizontal uh, pumps that would, would uh, you couldn't get parts for, that would go down on a routine basis. And then we had some LMCs and DMCs from the 70s for snowcats. Um, so it was very similar to the mountain that I grew up on and just needed an updating. In fact, I had spoken to someone who's, you know, a proficient ski area operator in the Midwest who was interested in investing with me originally. And, you know, looking back now, although it was an irritating comment to hear at the time, he said, listen, I'm really not going to do anything here with you, Spence, because you're basically zoned for skiing and there's nothing on this property that doesn't need to be replaced. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he said, I'd rather, uh, I'd rather take it over in foreclosure. And I just said, you know, I, I don't ever plan on letting it go there. Um, so, uh, but his assessment was pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so $17 million later, you have a completely transformed mountain. Uh, take us through it. What, what, what does a skier see when they show up at West today? Well, we got rid of a lot of the old buildings. So when you pull in, you, you see directly up the mountain. Um, we moved the chairlifts to the center. Uh, so it basically bifurcates the mountain, which is kind of nice. We have a 16 acre face trail, which is the big square trail when you pull in. So you see that. And then, you know, the public skis uh, lookers right and the race team uses lookers left. So it really sets it up nicely where we don't have to close trails for races. 
The narwhal is the uh, a new trail we put in. We did uh, an enormous amount of um, dynamiting and blasting to put that in. And uh, again, lookers right is public and lookers left is race. You roll up over that to the holy mackerel, which used to be a thin snake winding trail that you know was my son's favorite, but had no snowmaking, no lights. Um, and then on the left was the infamous cure, which was about a groomer width wide. It was open maybe once a year at that. And, um, you know, it basically, you know, as far as getting down it, there was no snowmaking or lights and, um, you didn't, you didn't need a base grind when you were done. That's for sure. <laughs> um, it took care of that for you. And that was just a really cool trail that everyone thought there was no way you could get snowmaking and lights. And those were kind of the concepts. So we, we widened that to 40 meters. Um, so we have a legitimate, you know, double black diamond trail. Um, we widened the holy mackerel. Many of these things had just grown in on themselves over the years, um, like dramatically, you know, in the Adirondacks, you know, it's a transient rainforest. So if you aren't doing trail maintenance, it doesn't take long. And, um, so that's what you see. You go up a major lift that we bought from Haystack or the Hermitage club, which is, um, the old barnstormer lift. We put that in first and then we bought a brand new, uh, Partech that goes up the face and a brand new Partech over on the Northwest side, put in about 40,000 feet of snowmaking pipeline, 200 mounted snow guns, three new snowmaking pumps, VFD drives, a uh, million dollar cafeteria remodeled and uh, the Northwest Lodge completely moved the chairlift to lookers right. So you weren't getting pitched into the towers as you were skiing down the midway because it had a fall line to the right or skiers right. Um, put snowmaking and lights on the midway that had fallen apart. Uh, put snowmaking and lights on the AOA which is uh, one of the more popular trails at the mountain that was never open because it's the northernmost trail and didn't have snowmaking or lights. And basically uh, put in 375 new LED lights and uh, you know four new snowcats and expansion on the race building, 500-foot conveyor belt lift on the tubing park. And uh, the list goes on. It's been a lot of work. It's taken eight years, um, basically took three years longer than I had estimated and about three times as much money as I had estimated. So there you go. Well, the transformation has been incredible for anyone who has not been to West mountain, uh, in the last decade and, or any of the intervening years, you really need to check it out because it, it is, it is spiffy. It is nice. It is, it is not the mountain you remember. Um, you know, I think West really, now that you're done with that sort of initial infrastructure replacement, it's really become a model for how to reinvigorate a mid-sized ski area. And I'm sure there are a lot of independent operators out there that are saying, sure, I'd love to invest $17 million. But where does that money come from? How did you raise this capital? How, how would you suggest another ski area operator that's out there and facing this kind of similar situation that you did with a rundown mountain? How would they go about getting the financing to do this? Because it, it can be done, but it, it's expensive, right? Yeah, it's, it's difficult because if you want to go to the, to the end user or the end financier, which would be someone that we're looking to talk to now for our, our ski and stay resort development, and then eventually the mountaintop development. Um, you've got to have a ski area that, and I learned this the hard way, that is functioning, you know, supporting itself and doesn't need a ton of infrastructure. Because, you know, whether you're talking about Powder Corp or Vail or you're talking just about like a CNL real estate investment trust, most of those people are not looking to come in and start from scratch. Uh, you know, I shouldn't speak for them, but, um, you know, and start replacing chairlifts. They want something has to exist in its location, um, at skier visits. Um, so to raise that money is extremely difficult. So how would you do it? Well, something you got to be a little crazy probably and uh, 
to do something like this. For me, I got lucky. Um, there was a land development that was in process at the top of the mountain, which was a quarter of a billion dollar development that had been slated. And really where Mike Brandt, who was a true visionary, and you can't say enough about the three Brandt families, and, and I'm being serious, the, the dilapidated state this was in um, really had nothing to do with them. They had, had sort of moved on since then. Um, the amount of work they put in to build the trails that we have, I just, I can't even imagine doing it back then with the equipment that they had and et cetera. And like I said, my family all worked for them. So anyways, but there was a mountaintop uh, thing called Mont Luzerne, which we do plan on revisiting that. Um, but it was an enormous project um, and uh, it got a lot of attention and it, and it drew a lot of money from the ski area, just as far as the gentleman that was running the project had borrowed a lot against the top and against the ski area and it put the ski area in jeopardy. So my, my thought was I would just kind of George Costanza and do everything in reverse. So I just said, well, I'll do the ski area first. And then once I've got the amenity fixed, um, that should bring along the rest. So how did I get the money to do it? Well, um, I had a, I had a couple investors I knew who gave me the seed capital, um, just to get it rolling. And, um, I had some, some family members, um, and we, we pieced together, you know, about a million and a half dollars to get through the bankruptcy and to get open knowing that that was never going to solve. That was just a bandaid. Um, and then I met one of the guys who was investing in the land project up top. Maybe he wishes he hasn't, hadn't met me, but, uh, I drove down and met him and I said, listen, the, the land up top had been bifurcated from the ski area. I want to bring all the land in the ski area back together. This is my vision. I want to fix the ski area first. And then I think the land will go. Obviously there's, you, it would be difficult to even define the risk in this project because there's so many variables like weather and, and, you know, competition and yada, yada. Um, but he was interested in doing that. And um, he's still with me today. Um, we bought out most of the other partners. Uh, it's myself and he and, and, a, and a couple of his friends. And, um, you know, we did use bank financing um, to, to get bank financing for a ski area is, you know, like looking for gold. It's next to impossible. Um, it's a risky venture, especially when you're not turning a profit, obviously, and you're rebuilding. So, there was personal guarantees involved to get that financing. And I'm very fortunate that they were willing to take on that type of personal risk. Um, and I feel, you know, we finally turned the corner. It just, you know, a ski area is just, if you, if you, like I always told them, if you, if you want to spend a dollar, you try to spend 50 cents and, and you'll get to the dollar every time, if not a buck 50. And it just sort of evolved. So some of our money that was invested went to operating and some of it went to infrastructure. I'd say legitimately, um, 15 million in straight up infrastructure, you know, and then there's a labor component and everything else and paying off the old debt, which gets us close to 20. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm a good salesman and, and these guys were already involved. Two of the guys were already here. So, you know, I just found them in contracts and they were partners in the land development and they agreed to come in with me on the ski area. So I'm not sure that's fair to put anyone else up to that task. I luckily had two people that were are, that were involved ahead of me that I could um, that you know had the wherewithal to sort of take on the ski area. Well, it does seem as though skiers are responding. Uh, in the Glen Falls Chronicle a couple years back, it stated that you started out with 36,000 skier visits per year when you took over the ski area in 2013 to 14. By 2018 to 19, that had risen to 80,000. And Sarah, you told the the Chronicle that your goal was to hit 120,000 annual skier visits. Uh, that was just before the 2019 to 20 ski season, which I'm assuming was 
cut a little bit short because of COVID and everything. But but where are you at with skier visits now, and what do you need to do to hit that hundred twenty thousand goal? Um, Spencer, do you have those numbers? I don't have it for the year, but we'll be we'll be um, like in two thousand. We were in the seventy some thousand range, like you said, and and last year was cut a little short. We also went through a, a repricing um, and you know a renovation period. And obviously with COVID, we ended a few weeks early. This year, we'll be pushing the 100,000 mark, which really is kind of the sweet spot for profitability here at the mountain. Uh, to get to the 120, I mean, I was told as you do investments at the mountain, it takes you know at least three years for word to get out. And I think, you know, not that I'm glad COVID's here, but I think that we definitely got exposure this year that would have probably taken us three years to get. If we get to to 120,000 skier visits, I really think that's sort of the optimum level for West Mountain, where it's making a decent profit, and um, that'll spur the investment in the in the land development. And 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 you know, people, there's very few, there's almost no instances actually of a development occurring at a ski area that does less than 100,000 skier visits. I had a study done a few years ago, and that was one of the results that it came up with. So, and I also think, you know, obviously the development increases skier visits, but you, you chicken before the egg, you kind of got to have the uh, skier visits first. Like I said, nobody wants to build a ski area. They like to build around ski areas that are already working. So for us to have a ski and stay resort, I think is the next logical chapter. I don't think we ever truly make it until we have that. I and mean, people like to come unpack their bags, let the kids hit the ski or ski, hit the hill and uh, ski a few runs and come in and, you know, have dinner, lunch, hang out, and not have to get back in their car and drive to the hotel. So, and there's not a lot of that in New York. So you mentioned that you got a lot more exposure this year than you may have otherwise. Is that because of the the ticket limitations at some of the bigger mountains around like Gore? Were they selling out and the people were finding West or was it just more people just looking for things to do outdoors in general? What, what, what do you attribute that to? I'd say that I'd say three things influenced our uptick this year. One is we finished the Northwest side last year, which was full snowmaking and lights, which really is a premier skiing area of the mountain. We have three continuous trails about a mile long each on that side of the mountain and um, a brand new chair left over there in a renovated lodge. So as the season was winding down before COVID struck, we started getting like, it was bizarre. We started getting a lot of out of state plates in the parking lot on the weekends. I had people coming up and speaking to me, one of the owners, Wyndham, and other mountains that said, wow, I mean, it's unrecognizable. And really that switch, you know, that paradigm shift happened last season. So some of that was word getting out. Then I would say at least, so call that a third. The other third would have been people just, you know, dying to get outdoors who've been locked down. And the other would be decreased competition. And that would be either gore and some of our local pressure for competition. Um, and then obviously the Vermont shutdown. So we had a pretty major step up this year. I, I think we'll retain at least 50% of that step up into next year, maybe 75%. And then eventually this will, these type of numbers in business will become the norm and then hopefully a little higher. But we did, we did, like I said, get jump started. We hurdled past probably two or three years of name recognition and exposure. Um, we're working with a new company called Lyft Marketing, where we have been for a couple of years out of Saratoga that's doing a really good job too with TV ads and all that type of stuff. So you mentioned you want to move toward a, a ski and stay model and Foothills Business Daily recently laid out your long-term expansion plan for that. Uh, what's in that plan and what is your timeline to achieve that? Well, so my wife, Sarah, and, and I don't mean to keep talking over her. She can 
speak as much as she wants to here. Um, some of this stuff is more specific to investment and land, and that's really kind of my area. So um, my time frame is to immediately start looking to get approvals from the town. Um, I've talked to the town supervisor. We're lucky that we've got you know skiers on the town board. Um, our concept is to make Queensbury a ski town. I think everybody's on board with that. We're not looking to do anything crazy. That would be outside of the skier mold. Um, it really would be to increase tourism, bring people to West Mountain. And uh, so in the next eight to 12 months, I'm working on the approval phase, getting surveys done, um, one foot contours, that type of stuff. We have a beautiful piece of property, about 60 acres at the Northwest side, which is kind of the low hanging fruit. And that is uh, you know, right dead smack off West Mountain Road. It used to be the Hudson Farm, it was a large farm. It was the last piece of property that was purchased so, and therefore never developed luckily. Um, so we kind of have a clean canvas over there. Um, we butt up against the Adirondack Park Agency, so we don't, we're not in the park, um, or, you know, it would be a non-starter probably. Um, but it's nice because we butt up against um, woods over there. So it's not like we are an urban ski area, but we wouldn't be in anybody's um, back or front yard with a development. And um, we would like to get that started as soon as possible, hopefully find a developer that would come in sooner than later. And maybe we would start pre-selling lots a lottery system or first come first serve, letting people pick out their lots when we're in the concept phase uh, for, for a down payment. And then once that's finished, move to the top of the mountain, the 440 uh, units that were rezoned there for high density that never went in back in the Mont Luzerne project. But that that's a ways down the road. I mean, the initial concept would be the Hudson Farm and putting in 180 to 220 doors there, a new lodge over there. And eventually the last phase would be a hotel on that side of the mountain. Um, you know, at the first overlook, you, you can see Killington, Pico, you can see the whole backside of Vermont only going up about, you know, 200 vertical. Is that entirely a real estate development, Spencer, or are you looking at new lifts or new trails or anything over there? There's one, there's, so it would be real estate. My dream would be, um, you know, Dan Fuller's done a really nice job out at Bristol, obviously. He has two high-speed detached quads um, and, you know, we have a thousand vertical. Our lift run is about 3,500 feet and our vertical is almost exactly a thousand. So we've got about an eight minute lift ride, which is, which is perfectly fine. Um, I'd like to extend a chairlift out into that farm area and drop a bull wheel right in the middle. So you'd have some sort of maybe like, obviously not a, not a whole foods, but that type of small shopping center in there for this side for, for patrons, obviously in this side of Queensbury and coffee shop and walking paths. And there's a lot of big old locust trees and um, cobblestone fences. I and mean, it's really untouched. And you could have a really kind of cool genre over there. You know, maybe not the Ritz Carlton at Beaver Creek, but sort of a polished area. And I thought to, as a centerpiece, you would put a high speed um, quad in there and drop that bull wheel right in the middle. And that would be about probably a 5,500 foot lift. So it'd be a little more justified of the higher speed. And that would, connect right to the top dead center of the ski area. And um, so that's that's sort of a dream. I, I'm assuming if I got a developer to bite on that, we could bake that into the project, probably around a $4 million expenditure. And then I'd also like at some point, lookers right, you can see the high knoll of West Mountain, the, the highest piece of the property. Um, if you go up, there's a plateau up there of about 300 uh, feet. That Right off the backside of that, it's about 500 vertical that drops down into the back plateau would be the housing development. And I thought it'd be cool to have a little two-seater maybe that went to that top knoll that you could get over into the development from and then a 500 foot 
chairlift back up. And that there's one area there that would be a really cool new trail that would be would be a little longer than what we have, and it's it's steep terrain, but you could switch mm -hmm. back it enough to where it would probably be intermediate terrain. So that would be part of that project. We wouldn't be able to take that on until we had a developer. So what what you're describing here, Spencer, it it reminds me a lot of what Brian Fairbank has been, done over at Jiminy Peak, which mm -hmm. is a pretty similar size mountain to West, right? It, but it is, he's yeah. really done a nice job over the last several decades of creating a sense of place, right? And and creating that little ski in, ski out at the bottom. So while the mountain itself is not what you would typically maybe think of as a destination size mountain when you have much larger mountains to the north in Vermont. People do go there for that because they've created that little sense of place. And, and you're right. When you said earlier, that's really missing in New York because there's no development at all on the side of the two largest mountains, which is Whiteface and Gore. And I know a lot of people like that because it you know preserves the character. Personally, if I'm going to drive that far and take a ski trip with my family, <laughs> I don't want to get in a car in the morning and drive up to the ski area every single day. I want to open my door and go skiing. And you actually had a really good quote about that. In that article I referenced earlier, you said, quote, people don't want to commute. They want to come, come up, unpack their bags and spend three or four days skiing, end quote. So what's the opportunity here? Because as you said, outside of Hunter, Wyndham, Holiday Valley, which is really on the other side of the state, there just isn't a lot of this in New York State. And I, I personally think it's a big missed opportunity. And I think it's a big opportunity for you here. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, location wise, we're about a mile and a half, two miles off um, 87, which has about 10 million annual um, passers-by on that exit. You know, we're 10 minutes from Lake George, so there's stuff to do in the summer. The outlet's at exit 20. We're about 20 minutes from Saratoga Springs. So we do have a year-round. I mean, it's crazy up here in the summer. It's much busier than in the winter. So we would have a market, you know, for mountain biking, hiking, and sort of a cool, that, that like I said, that old farm over there is really, I mean, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, but you're right off I-87. It's quiet. You can hear the peepers. There's ponds. It's cool. Um, and there isn't that ski and stay here. Now I've been to Holiday Valley and, and that really would be kind of the model. They've done a really wonderful job out there. I went out there for a Sandy show. Um, and I think a thousand vertical that we have is exactly what people are looking for that are coming up. Well, even people from the Albany area, I think myself in, included with four kids, I love going to a mountain that you can just unpack and stay at if it's, if it's nice, you know, like it's doesn't have to be, like I said, the Ritz Carlton at Beaver Creek, but it can be. You definitely think it, you know, you're at a resort, you know, it's got a spot, it's got the hot tubs, it's got outdoor pools and, and then it's got all the stuff for the kids and you know where those kids are going to land. You know, you don't have to go chase them around uh, a huge mountain. You know, they're going to come, they know how to get back home. You can, you know, have peace of mind and relax. And, uh, and I think, you know, people coming up from Brooklyn and Long Island and New Jersey and New York city, um, we're about two and a half hours from the city here. I, I think this size mountain is exactly what they're looking for. I don't think they're looking to ski, uh, you know, some may be looking to ski, you know, 3000 vertical. A lot of these people are intermediate skiers, but then you would get the experts that would come here just for the whole the ambiance and the whole experience. So, yeah, I think if you wanted to, if, if New York wanted to take on Vermont in the tourism, and I know there's always that battle um, that we're, we're better positioned than any, than any mountain in the state to do that, to have a ski and stay and to keep people from, from crossing the border. So once you pull this off, so this is phase two of your master plan, right? Where you're trying to build out the ski and stay element, uh, lay out the rest of the plan for us. If, if you want to think a decade or two into the future, what does West mountain look like when you're finished? 
Well, you know, our big goals, and I'll let, I'll let Sarah, I'll switch over to Sarah here. For me, it's to have a development at the base and to have the top development, which was, which was a 2,400 unit development. We're not looking to do that. Um, we retained a hundred and we retained 1,200 acres of the 2,400. Uh, the other 1,200, it was nice. It was, was purchased and it's really a, a large swamp with a blue heron rookery that was purchased by Open Space Institute and it's going to be forever wild and that butts up against us. So it's kind of cool. They're going to allow hiking and all that type of stuff. Um, I'd like to do something at the top for sure. Have some pod developments up there. The, the top plateau, people don't realize West Mountain doesn't go up and come back down. There's a massive plateau and, and it's like something out of last of the Mohicans. It looks out over um, the Adirondack Park. The front side development looks out over the old Albany Lake Basin and uh, in, over to the Green Mountains of Vermont. So very unique uh, views, depending on whether you want a sunrise or a sunset or whether you want like a virgin forest view or whether you want to view, you know, a, a long distance view over to Vermont. So I think there would be mountaintop development um, that would primarily be homes. There might be some small amenities up there. And then at the bottom, I'd like to see like 180. The townhomes, I think, are a nice model with a lodge. Um, and I like the ones that are at the, uh, the Collins Lake Resort, the chalets at Collins Lake Resort out at Mount Hood. We go out there and ski every summer at the glacier and have a race camp. So that'd be the mountain component. And then the race team itself has grown from about 10 kids to about 110. Um, we're, we're, we're definitely a competitor now. Our goal is to be able to compete over in Vermont at Easterns against the academies because there's definitely a quantum leap when you leave New York and head to Vermont. Not in every case, but in a lot of cases. So we're with our night skiing and our academy, we're able to get, you know, we had our kids on snow this year in the academy, 84 days, which, you know, the U.S. ski team's 130 to 150. With our summer camp, we'll have our kids at about 100 on snow days, which I think rivals anyone. And we want to have a, uh, an academy on the, the main base side of the mountain. We bought some property out front, the old Brant house. We want to have a winter term boarding academy. So then, Sarah, you want to talk about your vision? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my vision is just to take what's currently here, because I think especially the locals really like the look and feel of, of West Mountain and the Adirondack. And there's a lot of Swiss influences here because the Brants were from Switzerland. Um, and, you know, that has been some of the feedback from our locals is that they like what we're doing and they like the fact that we're not changing it up too dramatically. Um, so maybe adding some modern components to it, but really keeping the look and feel. And, and I think I should mention that, you know, my husband really concentrates on outdoor operations and I, my focus is really indoor operations and, I spend a lot of time on on training the staff, hiring, you know, really quality staff. And uh, I put a lot of time and emphasis on training and customer service. Um, this year, we, we uh, purchased a new ticketing software system, uh, which has allowed us to um, sell all of our products online, which has been a huge benefit um, and really has made the online purchasing process very seamless from our website to our web sales host um, and has allowed us to control all of that where before we were using a third party vendor. Um, so, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time on uh, developing and creating menus for our cafe and our restaurant so that the food quality matches the skiing experience. And um, I, I, 
just focus a lot on that with my managers about how, you know, we want the customer service to really element to be top notch from the time they pick up their ticket at the ticket window to uh, until the time that they leave. Um, so, you know, I, I know in this, this time where there are all these conglomerates, you know, the, the customer can kind of get lost and, I, I just, you know, I, I just constantly harp on the managers. You know, we, we want we want our customers to have the best possible experience here, so that you know they leave here wanting to come back. And and I want people to feel like this is a different experience. This is a a friendly environment and one that people want to come back to. To that end, you've made two huge uh, building infrastructure updates. One was that a big cafeteria update that Spencer mentioned earlier, and the other was an overhauled uh, Northwest Lodge. Talk a little bit about those two projects and how those have created a better, better customer experience. Yeah, I spent a lot of time on kind of, uh, you know, looking at ideas online as well as visiting other ski areas. And um, I really wanted a clean looking modern design that fit in with what we currently had in the lodge. Um, and uh, I, you know, I wanted a lion style cafe that uh, offered, you know, a combination of your standard uh, ski area fare plus, you know, some healthy sandwich options, um, soup options. And, and again, you know, we, we make everything in house. Um, so even our soups are handmade and, uh, you know, I, I try to put a lot of color into our food so that everything looks and tastes really good. Um, and, you know, I, I try to maintain color schemes throughout. So, you know, our managers probably think I'm crazy, but I have, uh, you know, color schemes that we, we use in our lodges um, and then outside on our buildings. Um, so trying, trying to make sure that the flow of everything is, is uh, pretty standardized and um, no matter what, what lodge you walk into, it, it has the same look and feel. Part of the purpose, I believe, of that Northwest Lodge update was to create another base area for season pass holders where they could go and, and just kind of skip the the larger crowds over at the main lodge. Uh, has that worked out the way that you wanted it to? It has. They love it over there. Um, I can I can tell you that probably our our biggest compliments have come from having that side of the mountain open all the hours of operation that the main base area does open a little bit later and close a little bit earlier. Um, just because ski patrol has to open the trails and then um, close them down first. But um, the, you know, pass holders have really gotten used to, even ticket holders have gotten used to going over there and parking and they just, you know, they like it. It's, it's quieter, it's easier access and, um, and just great skiing. So I want to talk a little bit more about your night skiing operation. You've made a point to light 100% of terrain for night. And, and this is another area that I think is a big missed opportunity in New York. I grew up in the Midwest and in Michigan, every ski area is lit 100% at night and, and they're pretty busy. Uh, and, and this is this is something that, that you've completely redone. And when you're, you mentioned your proximity to the thruway and West is absolutely the easiest ski area 
in New York state to access. But when you're driving by at night, it is really impressive the way that it, it's lit up from the throughway. Uh, why did you prioritize night skiing and bringing that operation hundred percent online? Well, the, you know, it really differentiates us. Like you said, there's not a lot of places with it. Um, and we are an urban ski area. I'm stealing that term from someone, someone can't remember who described West that way to us. And it's, it's definitely a different niche. Um, but you know, people get out of work and want to come ski. Um, at the time, you know, there was some low pressure sodium lights here and you know, the, the yellow lights. And then they had the, uh, the halides, which is more of a white light and it was mixed and matched. So your eyes would have to, you know, adjust to the different texture of lighting as you were skiing. So we wanted to we always had night skiing. I mean, I remember as a child here, I can still hear the shivs on the on the number two chair that made that as everyone knows who skied at West. There was a couple of towers that you could hear those. I I, uh, I made a recording of them before we took the chairlift down and uh, it was cool going up through. You know, it was in the pitch black and um, that's just I don't know. I think people just really like night skiing. So we wanted to expand that. So we redid all the lights. And then we got lighting over on the northwest side as well. There had been some limited lighting and snowmaking there in the past, but it had fallen into a dilapidated state. And to be honest with you, no one wanted to ride that chairlift. I had one investor once that said, I'll hike the mountain before I ride that. <laughs> <laughs> and those are tough obstacles to overcome. I mean, if somebody really has that yeah. adverse reaction, they're not putting money in. <laughs> so yeah, that one needed to go. I think it's been great for the kids, too. I mean, a lot of our school program kids got used to skiing the same five trails um, mm -hmm. just because the northwest side of the mountain didn't open until close to when the programs were ending. Um, so it's been nice for these kids to be able to ski on on more terrain. And um, I think, you know, our, our school programs just continue to grow. And I think as more and more schools start hearing about you know, us having more lighted trails and, and more trails open earlier, we're starting to get um, more interest from, from new schools as well. Yeah, Sarah's taken the schools from about 600 kids when we took over to about 1,600. So that's been a really big growth area. And, and people, people really do love the north side of the mountain. I mean, there's people that have been coming here for years that didn't even know that existed. I put that massive hemlock tree up with the West Mountain sign at the road so people even knew it was there. But it was a when we moved in, you couldn't see the Northwest Lodge because it was overgrown with sumac trees along the road. There were, you know, the windows had been shot out and uh, it was in complete disrepair. You know, obviously that's sort of a perfect venue for ski and stay in a larger lodge someday because it's kind of quiet and off the beaten path. And then we would keep, you know, predominantly most of the racing and the tubing park and school program unloads over here. So this would kind of be the loud side of the mountain and that would kind of be more of the resort side. Um, so you'd have both to choose from, but the skiing over there is really good. So let's talk a little bit more about those kids programs that you've been growing. Um, how far do you actually draw kids away from to West Mountain? Um, I would say for uh, the school is probably close to an hour away. And what are these programs? Are, are are these distinct from the race programs? These are these are just kids coming up on buses to ski for fun. Yes, they come one night a week for six weeks, and um, a lot of these schools have been coming here for years, so they have their designated time, um, their designated day of the week, and then new schools. We kind of filter those in wherever we have openings. Um, but we've gotten so busy that pretty pretty much every night of the week is busy here, um, which is great. I mean. It's a, it just adds a whole 
new element um, to the mountain when school programs start. They start at the beginning of January. Um, and uh, it's just it's just such so nice to see all those kids here at night, you know, outside skiing with their friends and creating a lot of memories. It, what do those programs include? Is that rentals, lift ticket for every night, transportation? It's all, all bundled together? Yeah, so they, they can choose either the lift-only package or they can um, add on the lesson um, and rental component. And then we added, a few years ago, we added a meal plan option. I think me as a mom, I, uh, I thought to myself, what, what, would, what could be an added benefit to parents? So I added the meal plan because I know I don't always want to be shelling out 20 bucks to my kids. So this, they get, uh, they get six meals for each time that they're here. And um, they have a designated meal plan menu that they can choose from. And we have quite a few healthy options on there, um, as well as standard, you know, ski fare. But um, it's, uh, it's been very successful. And, uh, you know, most of the kids do you do sign up for the meal plan. So in addition to those programs, as you said, you have a very robust racing program there. And I was up skiing at West on April 2nd, and there were still racers taking laps off the face chair. And I, I was trying to remember if I'd ever seen racers so late in the season anywhere, and I, I couldn't. So uh, just talk about those race programs and how important those are to the identity of West Mountain as you see it in the years ahead. Because you mentioned you, that you've taken that from uh, just 10 kids to a uh, multiple of that. Well, the race program... Um you know, it obviously brings patrons, parents come and ski, kids come and ski. It gives us exposure. We've hosted college, college, uh, Eastern regionals where we've had, you know, I think it was 17 States or something present. We've hosted uh fist races now with not this year, but we were really getting big into fist racing, which is international. We had 13 countries here two years ago. Those are all overnight. Those are all two to three day races. So those are, those all have a lodging component, which would fit nice into the ski and stay. And, you know, I'm cognizant of the fact that a lot of mountains, you know, the public does not appreciate trails being closed. And we've really tried to lay this out where that happens very infrequently. The only trail that kind of happens on when we're running a, a, a you know, a mountain top to bottom GS, we started at the top of the cure. So my thought is I'll, I'll cut uh, a skier's left, um, maybe a bump run off the top uh, corners of the cure so that that can also remain open during races. I haven't got it, but we'll see. But uh, it's a big component of what we do here. I mean, they come rain or shine. We've had days where it's been literally pouring rain and we're hosting races and the lodge will be packed. Um, we did the New York Kandahar race last year. We had 285 kids here with their parents for three days. So it fills in the gaps and gets us exposure and, um, and we want to compete. You know, some kids do the race team to be better high school racers. Some do it to be better skiers. We support anyone, whatever their goals are. Some want to go on and, you know, have aspirations of World Cup and some have aspirations of racing, you know, USCSA D3 in college or, you know, an NCAA D1. Um, Steve Lathrop, we hired, who was um, a pretty big name, he and his family in the, in the race business. Um, we've just entered into a new long-term contract with him. He was 16th in the world um, in slalom and, and a top racer. Uh, it's speed racer and uh, has been a coach for many years. We were lucky to find him. It's difficult to find uh, really high level coaches. I mean, it's, it's hard to do. I don't know particularly why it's sort of an odd profession, I guess. Um, 
and we want to be able to compete. We want kids to be able to come here. I mean, my goal was, and this is my personal experience and I'm not complaining, but I raced high school all through here. Um, I was never on the West Mountain racing team and that was just an affordability uh, thing for me with six kids. Um, that really was out of the realm. And, um, and I could compete because I grew up skiing here since I was three. Um, but really, it's such a technical sport that if your aspirations are to race um, at a higher level um, than high school, just a little bit of coaching here and there makes all the difference. I mean, Billy Brandt gave me a lesson once with my friend just on how to track skis, you know, just doing simple tracking drills, coming down and doing, um, you know, angulation drills. My brother, I think, gave him 20 bucks. And that changed a lot of things for me that year, like dramatically. And I thought, geez, that was one lesson. So when we moved back mm -hmm. here, I signed right. all the kids up for race team and we want it to be affordable. So for a kid to do our club programs about it's between $1,500 and $2,000 a year, and that includes a season's pass. And if you want to do our academy, um, that's between four and $5,000 a year. If we do winter boarding term someday, that'll probably be between the 15 and 19 per annum. And, uh, but you, you come here and you can get five days on snow in the club program for about 1500 bucks. And you're getting as much snow time close to as, as much so time as, you know, going to a $65,000 a year academy. So maybe I had an ax to grind, maybe I had a chip on my shoulder. I don't know, but I wanted to, uh, I wanted to make sure that we could reach those kids and there's a lot of potential and it's taken longer than I thought. I mean, it took a long time to really get the word out. We host races really well and we coach, I think, really well here. And, we're, and the results are starting to, to show across the boards, you know, in, in all of our age groups. Um, and it's a lifelong sport. I mean, it's a social environment for these kids and uh, they love it. So in addition to these uh, programs targeted at younger children, you're also aiming to grow your appeal among college students and 20-somethings. Uh, how is that work progressing? Great. I saw a lot more college kids here this, uh, this winter than I have in a long time. Um, we do focus our marketing a lot on that age group. Um, I think it's kind of uh, an untapped age group. Um, that we focus, we have not focused on in the past, and with the number of colleges around here, I just felt like we needed to start doing that. Um, and uh, it, it's it's definitely working our marketing. So I want to talk a little bit more about the improvements you've already made on the mountain, starting with your chairlifts. Uh, you've now replaced all three of your chairlifts, and. You mentioned earlier, Spencer, that you started actually with a used triple from the Hermitage Club. Uh, why did you decide to go with a used lift there? Was that just a pragmatic thing where it's like, okay, we, we need to replace this lift and maybe we're not in a position to buy a new lift yet, but but let's get a let's get something updated up here. Yeah, it was um definitely a money played a role in that. I mean, we we refinanced the ski area substantially in 2018 um, with the personal guarantees of my partners. We hadn't done that yet we hadn't really streamlined the business so i mean all monies that were coming in were, were basically people were paying for it so we were looking to do something less expensive and um we heard that lift was coming for sale so it had been completely retroed and updated um they had redone you know the the, the bearings in the in the shivs um it it had about a four hundred thousand dollar overhaul and if you're familiar with the hermitage club they had dropped the bull wheel down closer to the lodge well, after all that work was done, it was about a 6,000 foot lift on sort of a whim. The, the gentleman that was 
building the Hermitage Club, decided he wanted a six-pack bubble chair, Doppelmeyer. And so literally, I got a call. Billy Brandt said, hey, listen, uh, the Hermitage is getting rid of that barnstormer lift. It just was completely overhauled and redesigned. And um, he said, they'll basically give it to you for, for what they put into it, the recent overhaul. And, you know, you just, they'll bring it down. You got to send your guys over and come get it. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I said, geez, that, so I went over and he and I skied the mountain together and we rode the chairlift together. And one of the things he pointed out, it had very similar profile to West Mountain. You go up, it flattens almost like the holy mackerel and then went up again. So, you know, your shiv, shiv assemblies, whether they're depression towers, um, whatnot, really fit. Now, our lift is about 3,700 feet long and theirs was 6,000, but that doesn't matter. You know, if you go longer, but it had a very similar layout. Um, and plus we had all these spare parts. Um, we were going to originally put in uh, the sim- another used lift at the other side. We didn't end up doing it because I couldn't get the used chair lift I needed. Um, but uh, it was a really well-designed alpha chair. You know, you'll see them at Okemo. You'll see them at other resorts. Um, they're bulletproof and um, just a really well-designed chair lift. So we went with that and um, we're able to get it here and, and uh, get it set and, and ready for the 2015 season just in time for the, uh, the, the black swan of all ski seasons when we were open 50 days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got pictures of myself climbing the mountain Christmas Eve. It was 70 degrees and I was ankle deep in mud. And uh, so that I'll have to say that was the worst year. There were some dark days there laying on the floor. Wow. What was going to happen? <laughs> so so you uh, dropped a carpet load onto that triple when you moved it over. Was that part of the lift at Hermitage Club? No. Or was that, uh, was that an addition? No, we just put that in. I always like those things. And I know in Europe, not that I've spent time skiing in Europe. I'd like to, but I haven't. Um, but, you know, it's my understanding that, you know, chairlifts aren't, aren't installed there without a loading carpet. So we run 450 feet per minute on that chairlift. With a loading carpet, you can spin it at 500 um, we didn't end up doing that. I was told that the best thing about the loading carpet is one, people aren't getting blistered in the calves by the chair and two, it gets rid of your stop and starts. So it's kind of, kind of helped me get some in the middle between a fixed grip and a detach as far as loading experience. Um, we love it. I want to put one on the other side now. It's, it's funny. I got a lot of flack initially, but people, people really enjoy it. So uh, that West Express, as you mentioned, it replaced an old center pole riblet. Uh, that, that side loading was a really novel thing. What, what did you do with that old lift? Did you sell off the chairs? Did you keep a couple around for historic purposes? I did. I sold them. I knew those were going to be popular. So those, like even my investors said, Spence, you can do whatever you want with those chairs. <laughs> Who's going to want an old? I said, you don't understand these. Those chairs have all the memories. Everybody remembers riding up that chairlift and and because he rode up in the dark i mean it was i used to think there was like an, an abominable snowman on the back side of the towers i mean <laughs> it was just an experience you'll never forget and it, um they swing really nicely like at mount hood at huckleberries out there they they made some swings out of those and they're perfectly balanced i mean there isn't any chairlift that makes a nice swing other than those center poles in my opinion you can pump them with your feet so anyways i put them for sale and they instantly sold out I sold them for 399 bucks. I think employees got them for $99 and I held back mm-hmm. a couple handfuls of them to, to make swings around the ski area someday. Um, I'm making a big swing in my front yard and to give to the brands nice. and some other people. So I did hold about 30 chairs back. Those sold almost instantly contrary to the Thiokol triple that everybody, I don't think ever wanted to sit on again. 
And <laughs> I couldn't give those away. Eventually, eventually <laughs> Billy Brandt found some dude to buy, um, buy him for 99 bucks a piece. And he sold like a hundred of them for me out to Boise, Boise, Idaho or somewhere. <laughs> so okay, All right. there was a, it, you know, no one had the fond memories of the other chairlift, but the riblet, um, yeah, those are great chairs to make swings out of. If you put a nice, you know, pillow block bearing um, head on them, you know, they'll swing forever. Beautiful. Uh, so you, the facelift, you also updated that. That was also a double chair. And you dropped a quad in there. Uh, why did you put a quad in that in uh, that position? Well, you know, that's where a lot of our school programs learn. That's kind of our learner hill. Um, actually, West Mountain's train is extremely steep. I mean, when I, you know, I went and skied in Colorado and blah, blah, blah. And people would say that to me when I first started taking over here. And in my mind, I'd, I thought they were crazy. But honestly, beginner trains normally an 8% grade. And there's not a lot of that at West. Um, I mean, you got to know how to turn a ski or carve a ski if you're going to ski the face chair. But where I'm going with this is, you know, that's a lot of lessons are done there. And it gives like the, the instructor an opportunity to sit with two or three kids on the chairlift and, you know, have that teaching moment on the way up. Uh, race team uses it. Um, so we wanted a little more capacity there because it was, it was servicing both sides, basically servicing two trails. It's got the left side race. Um, I think I got a deal on it too. I don't remember exactly, but I think there might've been one that had already been started in production. So I would have been happy to put a triple there. Um, but it just worked out. We were able to put the quad. Yeah, I have to say, when you look at your trail map, it's mostly blue and green. But when you're skiing around, it it feels steeper than that. I was I was surprised, for example, uh, midway. Cause I, I usually don't look at the the map before I'm skiing. I kind of look after, and and I really was surprised that that midway off the apex chair was a green. I, I really would have uh, uh, nailed that for a blue. So so yeah, it's it's definitely a little steeper than maybe you'd initially think. So speaking of that apex chair, um, so that that's a a brand new lift. Um, and it replaced that, what sounds like the much hated older, slower triple. Um, so, so why did you do a new chair on that side and decide to go with a triple rather than maybe a quad over there? Um, again, you know, price has played into a lot of these decisions. Um, I, I know for a fact, um, on that chair lift that we had gotten a deal because, um, there had been someone that backed out on purchasing a lift. And I don't want to get into all that cause I don't know all the details of it. So, um, there was a price component there and honestly, a triple service is that side of the mountain fine for capacity. Um, so that was part of it. Um, there's also other, you know, factors as far as ease of loading. Um, if you're going to run a quad at higher speeds, like we run our quad on the face at 380, if you want to run them 450, it's tough getting four people lined up. So that was probably the, the, the number one decision was just being able to load that. Now, you might run a quad, but you're going to have a lot of stop and starts and you're going to end up with less uphill capacity. I think we're 1700 uphill capacity on that triple, which was plenty. Um, you know, it was a brand new chairlift. We, we put in two brand new chairlifts. Um, we wanted new lifts um, for, you know, just obvious reasons. Um, and then we bumped that lift to lookers right Um on the high side of the midway, uh, the other chairlift had been in on the tight to the woods on uh, the other side, and the trail sort of has an offset that sort of pitches you to the right. So we just bumped it over so it put the bull wheel more toward the lodge, and um, yeah, it worked out worked out really well. And we got the the snow guns on the uphill side as well. They used to be downhill side, which just requires a lot of pushing of snow when you're making snow. Um, it's very difficult to obviously push up an incline and um, 
So it all sort of make the snow and then we can just groom it out and it's worked out pretty good. So you've also upgraded the snowmaking system, as you mentioned, and it's, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Like I said, I was there on April 2nd and all the trails were not only still covered, but covered pretty deep. And there was kind of like some big holes you could see from the parking lot, but once you got up skiing, it was, it was nice and, and everything still seemed to be open. Uh, talk about that snowmaking system and your move to stationary guns and, and how, how that, why that was so transformative to the way that you can open, operate, run the mountain. Well, yeah. And the day you were here, it was bulletproof. We had thawed and it refroze. And then that weekend it was cream cheese up on the cure. It was really good. I wish you had gotten to see that, but, um, for the, we had mobile guns. I mean, there was some old SMIs that were here. Literally Mike Brandt, as I said, he was a visionary and he had, there was a patent dispute once with he, and he had built all their own guns here. And what they determined was the nucleator on the gun, the ring, it didn't matter if it was at the top or the bottom. So when they came here and they were going to challenge him, he was said he would, it was by accident. One day he was up there and he was spinning the, <laughs> the ring on the, out, on the nozzle and it just started making snow. And uh, he said, oh, so the guys came and he said, how about we don't have a court battle and I'll put my nucleator at the bottom or at the top, whatever it was at the time. Right. And, um, but a lot of these guns literally were those homemade guns. And, um, there was a few tower mounts in the center of the trail, which I got rid of all those. Um, I grew up skiing the frolic and it's just a nice carving GS trail. Um, the previous operator had put about 14 towers down through the center of that trail. So, I mean, you had to have your head up as you were coming down through there because there was, and they weren't, they were in a very random pattern. So I got rid of those and I got snowmaking moved to the high side on the frolic. And the amount of work with a mobile gun is astounding. You know, they, they blow themselves in, they freeze themselves in. The guy's got to go up and hand dig them out. You can't just shake them out with a, with a cat because you'll bust the frames. And it's just literally exhausting. So we wanted everything to be, we do have 10 mobiles that we'll use to spot blow and that type of stuff, but we wanted everything mounted where all we had to do was the guys don't like it. When I say this, flip the switch, they always say, you know, it's a hundred foot switch. Because uh, <laughs> I describe it that way, like, hey, go hit the switch and get that going. And um, but it really so there was no moving of the guns. And we don't have a full auto system here where the guns are, you know, adjusting their own stages. We went with a really nice polecat gun, which is about a twenty thousand gun dollar gun for gun in and tower. Um, they make incredible snow, they're perfect for this mountain. We do have some we do have 10 really nice full auto HKDs that we use in very specific areas where they will adjust. That's about a $35,000 gun. That's where they'll adjust the actual, they have their own uh, wet bulb indicators and computer systems on the gun and they will, you know, open and close the stages as humidity rises and falls and temperature rises and falls. Um, yeah, we can get snow down quickly. You know, one of my next goal is to put a pump house at the Northwest side. Everything comes from this side uh, with a 5,000 foot 10 inch artery, which was literally the first thing I did here. Scott Barthold was a designer of ski areas from Dartmouth came over and said, you know, really you don't have a pump problem. I mean, I got rid of all those as well, but he said, you have an artery problem. You got a six inch pipe and you can put a 10. And I said, well, that's not particularly bigger. And he said, yeah, actually it is six mm. times six is 36, 10 times 10 is a hundred just because yeah. of, you know, because of volume calculations, a 10 inch pipe will carry three times the water of a six inch and doesn't have the friction wow. coefficient. So the first thing we did, I have pictures of it. We put a 5,000 foot, 10 inch main to the top, put a valve house in and I make snow with the water coming down now rather than going up. 
So I'm gaining half a pound of static pressure for each foot it drops. So another way of saying it is, you know, if I left here at 500 PSI, I would fill the pipe to the top and because we have a thousand vertical. So I leave here at about 800 and I end up with friction loss at about 200 PSI at the top. And then I turn that around and come down with it and I'm gaining that half a pound of pressure every foot drop. So by the time you get to the bottom of the AOA, we're running about 700 PSI, which, you know, we're running 300 to 700 on the whole mountain now, which is what you need to run sticks. We didn't have the water pressure before. We couldn't use sticks here. So, yeah, it's good. I could use another pump and a little more capacity. I get my water from the town of Queensbury, which is an absolute luxury. You could drink out of the snow guns. And, oh, wow. um, and we've run about 300, 3,000 GPM. Um, with a holding pond that I can fill and use um, on the other side, I'd like to get to 5,000 GPM and I'd like an independent single pump house over there just to put the base area in, in the midway early season. So you can bury pretty much the whole trail network at this point, And you have made some updates to the trail network since you took over. I want to talk about those a little bit. Um, first of all, you mentioned the cure earlier and you said that was only open, you know, maybe once a year. So it's sort of like a trail in name only. And my understanding is AOA was the same thing. It really wasn't open that often. Uh, why did you prioritize bringing those trails back into the trail network on a consistent basis and making them more than just uh, lines on the trail map, but things that were actually part of the experience on a consistent basis? Well, the cure, the cure connected to the holy mackerel. And as, as you'll notice, all the names are kind of uh, the brands named them all. I did the narwhal, um, but they're all kind of funny names, eclectic or whatever. And um, the holy mackerel was a really cool trail. But again, rarely opened and the cure dumped into that. So I had to do the mackerel first and I wanted a, you know, a money trail. I wanted the trail that went under the chairlift top to bottom that was lit and had snowmaking. People like to look down and hopefully not yell derogatory comments, but watch other people ski down the mountain. And, uh, <laughs> and then the cure was on the left and you'd sort of see it veiled over there under all these hemlocks and brush that had grown in. And everyone always talked about it you know since i was a child we'd always go over there and ski it whenever it was open um and i just thought west needed a legitimate double black diamond i mean the cure is an extremely extremely steep pitch um it feels like you're looking straight down it when you get to the head wall um so we started there got the mackerel done first then the cure i told people i was going to race on the cure they, they thought we were crazy they thought oh you'll be killed i'm like well if you go to other ski areas they race on you know look at spruce over at Stowe. Um, and that's been our race trail top to bottom is FIS homologated, you know, internationally certified for giant slalom. And, and it's considered one of the top three race hills in the East. Now we've gotten a lot of write-ups from academies who've done FIS racing here that have written letters to Chip Knight out at USSA and really nice accolades. Cause it doesn't matter if you're racing FIS there or here. I mean, the trail's not top to bottom at these mountains. I mean, it's a thousand vertical within the mountain. So we've got the vertical to do it and we've got that incredibly steep pitch at the top and then you flatten out in the macro flats and then you roll the narwhal, which is also very steep. And then you finish on the face. So there's like five distinct, you know, uh, you know, textures, whatever you want to call it to the race. So that was in the back of my mind, being able to run a legitimate top to bottom ski race. Um, and then the AOA, I don't know if you know what that stands for. I don't know if I, I'll I tell no you. Um, well, let's say it's, uh, it's donkey over apple cart. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that word on the, uh, (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll let them puzzle it together. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a Mike Brandt thing. And, uh, everybody loved that trail. And, uh, 
and it was literally never open in you know except for a couple of days so we did that all in sticks so that's nice we can put that in pretty quick so you have that nice wide top to bottom race trail now in order to get there you had to eliminate uh there was kind of a network like a warren of narrow trails underneath the lift before so walk over dmb lower holy mackerel blizzard alley so you had to give up something to get something did, did you lose any ambiance or or sort of old school feeling by cutting out those little narrow trails i don't think so we still have crossover up there we put in another one shortcut and um the the uh the lower holy mackerel still intact that still has the uh, s turn at the bottom of it you come down before you go narwhal you ski skiers left so the mackerel stayed completely intact okay we call it dynamite corner up at the top we widened that mm -hmm. a little because it was a real pinch um under the chairlift the old riblet used to go up skiers left lookers right right tight to the woods and mm -hmm. you as soon as you went above the face it was solid woods like you couldn't okay. see any of the ski area when you pulled up here except the face right and then you sort of roll up through this narrow cut through the trees and then there was a big island in the middle of the mackerel and it sort of wound around to the right and um you were probably 80 feet off the ground there i mean that was a high wow. chairlift extremely wow. high um <laughs> you know we, we've lowered it and it went over an island and then up um, so that's all still there. There's a couple little trails here and there, but honestly, I don't think they saw much, such much action. And and we do, you know, we, there's a lot of people here that ski the mountain biking trails and stuff we put in when we do have the natural snowfall. So then over on the Northwest side, there were some trails that looked like they may have been put in between the branch ownership and, and yours, or they're operating it and, and you taking over. So there was Wally's way, radical Barry's run shortcut. Why did you cut those trails out? Well, there's, there's still a few of those there that cut through, but some of them were sort of bizarre. I'm not even sure they were legitimate trails. Um, okay. <laughs> sometimes people will put it, and I'm not disparaging anyone, but sometimes, you know, you'll do some cutting and you're trying to increase your trail count. Um, and I tried to keep anything that was a le legitimate trail. And I, I tried to keep anything that, you know, we all grew up on here that everybody knew. Some of the random cut throughs were, uh, you know, there was no snowmaking lighting on them and they were, in fact, you know, hadn't, hadn't been maintained. And, um, I don't think we suffered as far as skiable train. Obviously the skiable trains increased about 50% just with the snowmaking increase. Um, there are mountain biking trails over there that, you know, a lot of people use in the, when we do have the natural snowfall, um, that aren't listed on our trail map, but you know, that, you know, we don't, we don't prohibit that normally, um, unless mm -hmm. it's like bad conditions. Yeah. Have you considered thinning any glades on the mountain? Yeah, I think the, the next step would be to try to have some more glade skiing, and that would be on the northwest side. We already have these mountain biking trails that, that you can ski down, and, and that wouldn't be too hard. There's not much glade skiing on the southern side of the mountain. The only spot you could really do it would be skiers right of the cure, um, but that's sort of a, it'd be a very difficult area. The north side's got a lot of uh, tree terrain that we could open up, and yeah, I would like to have more of that. It's just the natural snowfall is, uh, this year was a great winter. I'd have to say this was the first. And when I was talking about bump up and skier visits, I definitely should have mentioned mm -hmm. the winter because um, right. 2010, we had a real winter here. The winter I moved back here and I thought, wow, it's just like my childhood. We had six foot snow yeah. banks and this place was rocking. And since then, we've had a major thaw, either President's Day week or Christmas week every year. Um, this year, we did not. Once it came, it stayed. And uh, it makes a big difference. 
Oh yeah, we, we the middle of the winter was just great. We didn't have a thaw for about six weeks. I I love that. So looking at Google Maps, there's a ton of undeveloped land on either side of you. Um, you know, you went through a lot of that is in different ownership structures earlier, easements or or whatever. What is the potential to expand West Mountain long term as far as that trail footprint and the the actual skiable terrain goes? So we do not have any footprint to the left as you're looking at the mountain from the tubing. Hill. Mike Brandt was never able to buy that section. We own the whole top crest of that over to the Hudson River. And you have this, you literally look down a thousand feet to the Hudson River Gorge. It's people that come to visit from Colorado are blown away by it. So luckily we do own the top crest. So we couldn't expand trails to the left. Um, where we could go is to the right or north. As you look at West Mountain and you step back, there's a, there's a very uh, distinctive knoll. So you're sitting out on the north way and you, the West Mountain is really a square mountain squares off and then it jumps up about 200 vertical and i talked about that a little earlier and um that's really cool terrain over there there could definitely be a top to bottom trail and if you s turned it you could probably get a mile and a half in and uh you know we want to put homes kind of like they did at Wyndham, up the right hand side of the aoa about two-thirds of the way up there's a nice road in there um, and then to the right of that, you could have a really cool trail that came off the top. The back side of the mountain, um, like I said, it's pretty much a plateau. Off that knoll, there's probably 500 vertical drop to get down to the uh, to get down to the where the, the home development would be. And there'd be some cool skiing there. There's just not much vertical. My guess is it would just be a single trail that went down and with a little uh, two seater that brought you back to the top of the mountain, so you could get from the back side to the front side. So that that big chunk of land lookers left that you're referring to left of the tubing park is that owned by is that a private owner is that is that private. state land what what is that um it was a it was thrown development went in there and put in uh, about i think 16 or 17 custom homes and oh, okay okay they, they the fingers of those homes ironically run up to butt into our property they don't run to the top of the mountain but that was a chunk of land and i don't think mike particularly got along with the people that had owned it. So <laughs> he was, he was unable to buy it. And uh, he like Mike, he accumulated land at 20 bucks an acre. I mean, the guy had 3000 acres amassed here wow. and we've been able to save about 1700 of them. And like the, the blue heron rookery and all that stuff is best case scenario for us. Went, went state forever wild. We didn't pay down the debt on that. That's where most of the debt was or a lot of it. And it just didn't make sense. So that terrain Looker's right. That potential. Um, w w is there any kind of timeline and when we could see development over there as far um, as skiing goes? It would definitely be coupled with um, a land developer. I, I think it's safe to say I've exhausted my current investors and uh, and that's not being derogatory. It's not like they couldn't shoulder more, but they've done way more than I would have ever expected somebody to do. And it's funny because they're not necessarily... Um, I mean, one of them's a, he skied most of his life, but it's really been the opportunity here for the land development, how we've gotten all this done. And um, it's been a really heavy lift. So I, timing wise, I guess if I got, got someone in here to take that project on, it could happen maybe by next summer. Um, wow. If it takes me two or three years, um, it could be longer than that. I obviously need to work with the town on it. Um, who's been a big supporter here. I think they're really in favor of a ski and stay resort. They don't want to see, you know, a random development that goes in over here with homes or apartments, that type of thing. They want to see something that's ski area themed. And, um, you know, that's all we want to do. So we, have, we share a common agenda. 
So as far as your current footprint goes, you put out a new trail map this year and I just love it. It's really gorgeous. Uh, talk about the process of creating that and, and why you decided to update it. Sarah, why don't you take that? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was a, a kind of a suggestion from our marketing firm to update it. It hadn't been updated in a while. And I know um, it was something my husband had mentioned um, on a few occasions. So um, we did hire um, a, a, a gentleman to come in and, and update the winter trail map as well as the uh, summer map, which is what we're working on now. And uh, was there a lot of back and forth on this or, or uh, did you just kind of say, okay, do you, or, or was there a process there? Um, you know, there, it went through several rounds of revisions. Um, I think we were, were all in agreement that there should be some mention of uh, our summer activities as well. So putting the adventure park on the winter map, I think is important so that people really start to, to, understand that we have summer operations because a lot of people are still unaware. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just, it was just about making sure that the map was accurate and easy to read and, um, and really well designed. Yeah, it's, it's really, really terrific. Uh, so let's, let's talk about passes here. Uh, it seems like a lot of ski areas really had surging season pass sales this year. Uh, how, how were your, did you see something similar? Were, were you, did you have strong pass sales? Yeah, we had, we had strong pass sales and we went to a very simplistic passing, pass pricing structure, um, which really helped things. I mean, we're, we're not, we don't have, we know who we are. Um, you know, the average pass holder comes 15 times and the average ticket purchaser comes three or four times. And we have a, not this year, but we have a big food and beverage component. And uh, so we want those visitors. Um, we want this to be people's home mountains. But we also knew that a lot of people in this area buy either passes to Gore or Killington. Those are your two options. And um, you're probably not going to spend eight, $900 twice. Uh, so we've said, well, let's just keep it simple. What's a pass at West Mountain? And in my mind, it just as a round number, 500 bucks. So we did 499 for adults, uh, $399 for teen. And... Uh, Two ninety nine for you, and that's we started that last year, and we've had an enormous response to that. We also, if you're a family, the second person's pass with an immediate family gets a ten percent discount, and we've done some stuff to for families. Um, and for us, it's about getting the visits here. People come after work; they might only want to ski, you know, five runs, and then hit the restaurant. We have a nice restaurant bar, um, so we've had ex big growth in season passes. Some of it's the pricing, some of it's word getting out, and some of it is just. I mean, people reconnecting with outdoor activities, <laughs> you know, let's hope that let's hope that stays. Just year over year. Um, and this was as of about a week ago, um, our season pass sales are up 145%. Oh, wow. That's for 2021 to 22 passes. Yes. Uh, that's, that's remarkable. I, I've spoken with some locals who really missed that midweek pass. Is that something you would consider bringing back? You know, we got rid of it because, well, a couple of reasons. One, it's confusing. Um, but two, we just, we dropped our pass prices overall, and we really wanted to capture that weekend market, not just the weekday market. So we thought, okay, you could get in here for $4.99. Never say never. Um, I thought it kind of margin marginalized our brand a little bit. Um, you know, we do offer a $30 ticket on Mondays and Tuesday nights. So you can definitely come get a couple nights skiing if, um, if you want to do that. 
Um, we, I haven't had, we haven't heard a lot from people missing that. I mean, there used to be a two hour ticket here too. And we're, we're trying to simplify. We're trying to build our brand where, um, you know, we've invested a lot into the mountain obviously, and need to get a return or, or go back out of business. And that was just one of the areas that we felt, um, we would try to encourage people to ski here seven days a week, not just five. And obviously someone has a pass somewhere else, they may go there, but if you have a pass for seven days and you get up late, uh, you're gonna go to West. Another pass here we've seen proliferate recently is for folks in their twenties at a lot of larger resorts. Is that something you've considered as you try to grow that business among folks in their twenties and college students? Well, we, we, we have, um, we don't have a specific pass. Like I said, we used to have multiple categories of passes and we just felt it was better to keep it simple and drop all the, all the pricing. Um, you know, if you look back where passes were in 2011, um, we're not near those levels. I mean, there was pass prices back in the day and probably unjustified. We went with, we had a family version pass. It was, was, uh, we eliminated, we went with higher pricing the next year. Um, that was not well received. Um, people were used to the family pass. So this we found is a happy medium, but we thought, listen, we're just going to keep it simple. This is an affordable pass um, up to 19 years old. You can buy a pass for $399. And, uh, you know, relatively speaking, what other things cost in society, um, we felt that was fair. And we just didn't want a ton of options. We just wanted a really simple passing structure. Have you considered joining the Indy Pass, Sarah? Yes. Yes, we have. Um we were all set to uh, join that last season, but then with all the COVID restrictions, um, last minute I decided that uh, that that probably was not a good idea. Um, but we are uh, going through all those agreements now um, with our marketing team, and uh, it is it's uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's something that we will join for next season. And what makes the Indy Pass appealing to you? I just think it's a, an, another avenue for people to um, possibly come and check us out. Normally would not. I know uh, Great Peak joined on. Um, I had spoken to somebody there about it and they said that they um, they felt like it was, it was definitely worth it. Um, so uh, yeah, it is something that we are looking into for next season. Terrific. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that pass, not, not just uh, for folks to be able to try, but also your season pass holders can then add on an Indy Pass and uh, be able to go and ski Jay Peak and Saddleback and Waterville Valley on a if they want to take a weekend in New England. No, that's great. Yeah. So uh, last thing here, I just want to talk about th- this season and, and COVID. So COVID kind of came out of nowhere. And, and like you said before, it really kind of shocked a lot of us and, and shut skiing down completely. Uh, now that you've gotten through the season and you've been able to process everything. Uh, how are you feeling about the long-term prospects of West as you recover? Well, I think, you know, we'll give back some for sure. Um, we were basically getting to a level of profitability last year before COVID hit. So we were on target. We weren't, we weren't not achieving the milestones. Um, this year, this year bumped us up. And, you know, like I say, you don't want to, con- you don't want to confuse uh, genius with a bull market. Um, I know there's people out there saying, hey, you know, we may restrict capacity next year. I just I don't believe any of that. Um, you, you you have to be honest with yourself and say that, you know, you had a, a bump up from COVID. You had a bump up from Vermont being res- massively restricted, other areas doing limitations. Um, 
So I think for us, let's say that we made an extra dollar this year. I would say that we, we keep 50 cents of that to 75 cents of that, which is good for us. I mean, that puts us in a good position. We had a stellar year this year. Um, we took our, um, our, our, a lot, much of our profits this year and use it as an opportunity to retire debt and uh, refinance the ski area, which will save us about somewhere between 400,000 and half a million in interest payments next year. So that drops my break even point for West. Um, we're able to get, um, take care of some other things, clean up um, outstanding. So it was nice. It was a nice shot in the arm and I'll say it balanced out 2015, 16. So if you looked at, nice. I mean, we lost a million five that year, I think. And oh, wow. um, this year we had a big bump up. So next year I'm very optimistic. I think definitely it got people back into skiing that helped some and it got exposure to West. Like it's just not never ending. Um, people, you know, don't remember what West, you know, was like back in the day, it was a great family mountain. Um, you know, the skiing was good, you know, it was a long time ago and it was, uh, so I think we'll give back some for sure. And then eventually we'll reclaim that. Like where we were this year is not our end goal. Um, but I think within three years, we'll, we'll be uh, three to five years, we'll be at our end goal. And I think, you know, we'll retain levels we were at this year, um, at a 50% to 75% of the bump. And then that'll become the norm within two or three seasons. Great. Well, last question for you today. I know you had, just like everyone else, you had to turn your operation upside down and completely rethink everything from the way people entered your lodge, what they used it for, how they loaded lifts. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the operators I've spoken with are saying, you know, this, this is, it was a pain in the butt, but you know what, we learned a lot and there's some things we're going to keep around. Are there COVID adaptations that you made to West Mountain that you intend to keep for the future? None I can think of. Yeah, I think um, uh, the 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 major one is, is, you know, I think customers even liked it was moving a lot of the, um, the ticketing redemption out outdoors so that you don't have that jam up in the lobby area. Um, cause we, we were accommodating a lot of customers right in the lobby area. And plus you had all of the lesson program participants coming in and checking in for lessons. So moving that all outdoors, I think was a huge benefit and something that we'll, we'll continue doing. All right. Well, Sarah and Spencer, I, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I, I know I kept you way longer than I promised, uh, but I, but I really love your story and it's been a really amazing to watch West evolve from what it was a decade ago to what you've made it. And I can't wait to see what you turn it into in the future. Yeah. We really appreciate you having and giving us this opportunity and the coverage and everything else. So uh, you do a nice, a really nice uh, job for the, the industry as a whole. So it's appreciated. Well, thank you so much. And I can't wait to come up and ski West again next year. Yeah. Let us know when you're coming. That's Sarah and Spencer Montgomery, owners and operators of West Mountain, New York. Thank you both so much for that. What you've accomplished at West so far is absolutely remarkable. And I wish you the best of luck with the rest of your plans. For the rest of you, head up there and support them. Drop them a day ticket. If you live nearby, consider a pass. As you can see, it's all going straight back into the mountain. They obviously really care about creating a great ski experience, and that is always worth supporting. And I really appreciate you all listening. You know how some ski podcasts disappear in the summer? This one does not. It will slow down a bit until fall, but I'll keep pushing out episodes. 
the very best way to get those the second they're live is to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also, follow the storm on Twitter at Stormski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.